Okay, I'm going to share the screen again for uh, the question and answer period so we can see the questions that have come in and we're trying to incorporate as many uh, as we can here. And uh, just give me one moment. That screen will be shared. <clears throat> okay, so before we move on to the questions, I, there's one that's been coming up and one that uh, we've discussed amongst ourselves uh, here at CC Partners, and that is, okay, we know that Regulation 288.20 doesn't specifically include reference to unionized workplaces. Is there any effect or uh, implication for unionized workplaces of this, uh, of this amendment um, to the ESA in the form of the regulation? And to that, my thinking is that um, all this does is reinforce the somewhat novel legal argument that I've put forward and that many of us have put forward from the beginning with our unionized employers. And that is simply that what is happening now, especially if you are forced to shut down um, rather than just experience a downturn in business, is that this is not the type of layoff that is contemplated by the collective agreement and, and that was contemplated by the parties. Now, every collective agreement interpretation issue comes down to the language of that collective agreement. But as a general principle, I think there's at least an argument to be explored for unionized employers that, um, you know, this is not a layoff as contemplated when normal layoff is talked about. And I recognize that some employers do have force measure clauses and so on and may or may not address it, but the absence of that language to me is not fatal, especially when you have now a legislative move by a government in Ontario and other moves in other jurisdictions across Canada that indicate um, that's how it should be. You know, this is, these are strange times and they require some special considerations. Um, that's that's the, the kind of biggest implication that I can see. Um, and again, everything turns on the specific wording of, of your collective agreement, but um, you know, we know how it, specifically how it applies in the non-unionized context, but um, I still think it has value in, you know, kind of underpinning the, the legal arguments that we've already been making with respect to um, these leaves of absence rather than layoffs. Um, oh, any of my colleagues want to comment, feel free to, to do so. I'll chime in just a bit. Um, the regulation does talk about um, union workplaces and employees represented by unions, and it says that the regulation itself, uh, insofar as the uh, deemed infectious emergency leave, um, do not apply to collective agreement workplaces. Um, but other than that, I would echo everything, Kelsey, that you just said, uh, just because the regulation itself is deemed not to apply to a union workplace doesn't mean that we don't have arguments to make about how our collective agreements need to be interpreted and applied in the current circumstances. 
Yeah, thanks for clarifying, Mike. And when I said that it doesn't include, I should have been more specific to say that it uh, specifically says it does not address. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it all it always comes down to the language of the collective agreement. But absent any language, I think and that's the point that we're getting at. Um, it, it should inform the way we look at uh, our collective agreement language. Okay, so moving on to the questions. Here we have a fairly common one, and this one was kind of, as Christina was talking, I had this specific question in mind, and I'll try to uh, make sure that everyone can read it there. So a large number of employees laid off, as has been common for many employers, and um, what happens? Who wants to, to field this? question and, and the hypothetical example there while everybody's reading it. So the question is, what happens with our employees who were put on layoff before the regulation came into effect and who we do not expect we're going to be able to reinstate uh, within the six weeks after the, the state of emergency is lifted? And, and remember, in that regulation, this is our COVID-19 period in which um, otherwise presumably laid off employees are deemed to be on a leave of absence instead of on a layoff. So what do we do with these employees? How, how does the regulation apply? Um, keep in mind what I, I said about um, layoffs under the Employment Standards Act, that a week of layoff the Employment Standards Act includes a, a provision for what is called an excluded week. And an excluded week includes time where the employee is not available or not able to work. If there's an excluded week, that does not count toward the 13 weeks or 35 weeks of layoff time. It does, however, count toward the 20-week 20 consecutive week period or the 52 consecutive week period uh, in which the temporary layoff may occur. So, and we don't have official guidance on this yet in terms of any kind of case law or decisions or binding um, authorities or interpretation. But I have to think based on the rest of the language in the Employment Standards Act that uh, an employee who was laid off prior to the COVID-19 period under the regulation could have essentially their layoff period expire, um, depending on how long the state of emergency lasts. And then if after six weeks from lifting the state of emergency, there is a need for the employee to be on layoff and it can be done pursuant to the terms of the Employment Standards Act, that restarts the clock. Uh, so to speak. So uh, again, we don't have authority on this, but the way I'm reading the legislation, that's the interpretation that makes sense. And that's how I'm viewing this. And that's how I'm um, communicating with clients. I think, uh, I think that's a logical and uh, reasonable interpretation, Mike. And that's like we said, we've been talking about uh, about this since the regulation came out and what it might mean. And while we don't have, as Mike said, any 
official authority and expect to end up discussing, if not debating and arguing with council opposite at some time in the future. Um, I think it's a very solid way to approach it in terms of relying on the general principles of statutory interpretation. Um, okay, so our next question then. So there have been a few questions about reduced hours um, and how does the change in legislation impact those employees who might be on reduced hours? Um, are they affected in the protected leave sense? I'll, I'll jump in again just because I have the regulation in front of me. Um, section four of the regulation, subsection one, paragraph one, specifically says the employee's hours of work are temporarily reduced or eliminated. So yes, an employee whose hours are reduced but who are not fully 100% on a layoff, uh, this regulation still applies to them. I have to assume this means that they are on a job-protected temporary leave of absence when otherwise they would be working. Um, so if they're working half the time, the other half the time, you know, it's not a layoff the other half the time. It's not a termination the other half the time. It has to be some kind of a job-protected leave of absence half the time. And that will extend, again, uh, six weeks beyond the end of the state of emergency. So, Mike, how does that apply in a case where the employees are already working reduced hours uh, for the COVID-19 period? So, for example, you know, maybe they're a full-time employee, but for some period of time, they'd been working something less than full-time. How do we, like, what, what's the method of calculating whether the hours have been reduced in a circumstance like that? Uh, good question, and I don't think we have guidance on that yet. I mean, what the Employment Standards Act says about a layoff is a layoff occurs when an employee is earning half of their regular earnings. And, you know, some employees don't have regular earnings, so to speak. They don't have a set schedule that's the same every week, so we have to kind of do, uh, take a longer view of it and do the appropriate calculations. Um, you know, it, it doesn't say what degree the hours have to be temporarily reduced. It just says that if an hour, hours are temporarily reduced by the employer for reasons related to the designated infectious disease, they are deemed to be on this job-protected leave of absence. So would we look at a, a particular period before the reduction to calculate what their, their normal hours would be? I mean, we may have people who have irregular hours, for example, from week to week. What's well, the, that's what we would do in normal circumstances. Yeah, right? so how does that work normally then? What, even uh, if we're talking about a temporary layoff as opposed to a uh, Yeah, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, we take a look at the 12 weeks prior to the uh, right. layoff or reduction in hours during which the employee actually made uh, money, actually got paid by the employer. We take the average of those 12 weeks to find out uh, whether there is a reduction in the hours okay i think that that's probably to me that would make sense as the as the normal way we might approach that question here and the uh, determination about whether there's actually a reduction but okay. i guess we'll see as that gets interpreted yeah. 
Um, Rob, yeah, I know uh, you. You, I think you touched on this in your presentation. There's a question from Sean, you know, from before we switched over to the Q and A. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to to take a look at it, but it's about um, modified duties and whether lost time might occur. Did you get a chance to yeah, so I, I think Sean's question is something that I did answer uh, in my commentary about what happens with employees who were on modified duties or uh, or on reduced uh, hours uh, because of a workplace injury before uh, before the um, the COVID nineteen period begins. So the WSAB has again made it clear that they're going to treat them the same way they were being treated prior to that, that what we were calling a layoff at that point. So the layoff um, and now the protected leave is, is it may result in a loss of income for the employee, but that a loss of income would not be considered to be related to the injury. It would be related to the special circumstances of the pandemic. So in that case, if the employee is doing modified work, at full hours, you're accommodating that person. They shouldn't be receiving loss of earnings benefits from the WSAB, and so that would continue even after the layoff that's not related to the injury. Of course, you know you have to look at the specific circumstances of every case. So if, in fact, the business is continuing to operate, but the decision uh, decision is made to eliminate the work of that employee who could otherwise have been accommodated, um, even during the pandemic, then it's possible that the injury might be a factor in the actual loss. So there may be some specific cases where that's not not uh, the case. But once we get out of that COVID-19 period um, and businesses start bringing people back to work, uh, we may start looking at, uh, at that a little bit differently uh, in terms of what the long-term economic impact is on that employee, or if the employee is permanently laid off or dismissed because of the financial impact on the business, but still is disabled or is permanently disabled, you know, then the WCB will look at that uh, case with a bit of a different lens at that stage. Um, you know, in terms of, of the, the costs associated with the employee's prior claim or injury, um, that, that really is a very specific uh, a question that depends on the, the circumstances of the employer. Uh, so it's difficult for me to, to answer that specifically. So I think I would have to take that response yeah. offline in terms of sort of business decisions about whether, should we bring someone back to modify work, even though, you know, even though it might not be economically f feasible in the normal circumstances, just because we're trying to avoid a loss of earnings claim. I think that that's going to be very employer specific. Right. And then before we move to the next uh, slide or the next question on the slides, I'm, I'm going to take a second to answer John's question also from before we switched over. Um, and if anybody's looked in the Q&A, it says, uh, good morning, based on regulation 288.20, employers will be able to temporarily lay off employees after the end of the COVID period if their business is unable to open immediately thereafter. Uh, this was probably addressed in, in the first question that Mike answered, but certainly, um, you know, the regular rules as, as Mike set them out in terms of our ability to lawfully lay off an employee will apply uh, once that COVID 
plus six, I guess I, I would call it a COVID plus six. Um, although I guess the whole thing is the COVID period for the purposes of when the, uh, when the, the IDEL expires, but um, certainly the, the normal rules will apply after that because <clears throat> unfortunately there will be employers who will not uh, likely be able to open at full capacity or, or get, you know, hit the ground running, so to speak, at, right off the bat. Um, okay, so next question then. How does the new regulation, uh, specifically the protected leave, impact employers if they're planning to terminate someone's employment who has been on a layoff as a result of COVID? So this is a common one, um, not only that we've gotten through the, the webinar, um, but also from, from clients asking directly as soon as this came out. Um, you know, part of what's been happening is em employers have had to uh, make some tough decisions either for immediate implementation or implementation down the line as they realize, um, you know, the realities of, of coming back after this. So um, the, the, the two questions on here are related. They came from two different sources, but I think they can be addressed um, together. Who wants to take this one? I know. Um, Christina, I see you nodding your head. Let's see if we can, are you able to uh, to get your audio going? No, it doesn't seem that way. No, we're, sorry, Christina, we're not hearing you at all. Um, <laughs> that, that's I know you have, I know you have thoughts on this. Um, Mike or Rob, either of you guys want to take this? <laughs> I, I do, but I've somehow uh, switched my screens around and now I can't read the questions anymore. Hold on. So, okay, here we go. Yeah, okay. How does the new regulation specifically protected leave impact employers if they are planning on terminating someone's employment who has been on layoff as a result of COVID? Okay. Um, well, if an employee is on a job protected leave of absence, uh, the kind that the provincial government has imposed in this regulation, uh, they're job protected. They actually can't be terminated. Um, except maybe if we think a little bit creatively and flexibly and, and work out a plan directly with the employee um, so that they would accept a package. Um, and when I say accept a package, now I'm thinking of what we would do under normal circumstances with an employee that we need or want to terminate, but we don't have just cause to do so. Uh, we make a, a proposal on what the uh, appropriate notice period would be. And notwithstanding that we um, you know, don't have to pay that much money, we say we will do it. Uh, if you sign back a full and final release of any claims against the employer. Um, that requires obviously the uh, employee uh, to be a willing participant in this kind of a deal. If they are not, they rely on the fact that they're job protected. And, and during the COVID-19 period, state of emergency plus six, I think is a, a good formula for it. 
you do not have the ability to terminate that employee. I guess I would I would take a bit of a different view than Mike on some of that, and maybe we can have a debate about that. But I mean, if we if we if we talked about other types of leaves that are protected under the Act, so the one that that comes to mind um, to me is as a pregnancy or parental leave, the employee has the right at the end of the leave to come back to the position um, if the position. Uh, is still exists, of course, and then there are other rights in terms of return of that employee to to that position. But employers are not prohibited from ending the employment for reasons that aren't related to the the leave itself or the pregnancy or parental leave. So, for example, if my business is shutting down, if you've got to a point where you can't bring anybody back. That employment will be terminated, and it'll be terminated in in the period of the protected leave. But the reasons for the termination aren't because the employee has taken a leave. Um, so that's the defense, essentially, to the breach of the uh, of the right to the to the leave. Um, so I think I think there I could see circumstances, particularly where the business impact on employers is extreme that there still will be opportunities to make permanent decisions about elimination of, of positions. But I mean, I, maybe Mike will, uh, will disagree with me on that. Well, and let, uh, let me pipe in for a second here, Mike, because I, I think maybe there's not necessarily a difference from a legal perspective in terms of our entitlements and obligations, but um, from a risk perspective in terms of which scenario um, it provides more risk um, and I think in that one that you've just described Rob which is more um, what we're looking at in the second bulleted question here I think there's less less risk um, when you've got that obvious and clear business justification than simply proceeding with a termination that um, that was already in the cards I mean I, I think the you know, Mike's points are, are well made and well taken as well with respect to if they're on that leave, um, you're you're running a big risk by just terminating, um, and you know that begs the question: Well, then do we have to recall them and then terminate? Well, if you're only recalling that one person and then terminating, that also you know the the risk and the perception, um, you know, as we know, adjudicators. Um, whether by statutory obligation, such as in the Human Rights Code, or by virtue of the, um, uh, I'm going to find a trying to find a politically way, politically correct way to say it, but by virtue of the general leanings of adjudicators in the employment sphere, um, the presumption is often in the employee's favor, where uh, at first blush it looks like there's been a violation, right? So. Um, I think it's more about the, the risk and, and what you can can or can't do and to offer a defense like Rob said yeah yeah and I think I think like like all the things that we've been talking about we're going to we're going to build some experience as as these issues get raised and argued but the infectious disease leave before this regulation spoke specifically about uh, certain certain events that would trigger that leave. 
um, like the employee became sick or required uh, to take time off work uh, to, to provide health care because of the pandemic. So those specific circumstances, I think, are different than those employees who we had already laid off in the general sense uh, on a temporary basis. And then they're now deemed to be on that protected leave. So I think I, I agree that it's all about the management of, of the risk. And so some of the timing of those decisions, I think, is important. And there needs to be some clarity that you're not isolating an individual employee that would elevate that risk of, of, of terminating the employment. Um, but, but I think we're going to see uh, because of the, the incredible economic impact of this pandemic, we may, we may see a, a lot more leniency in terms of how those defenses of employers might be, might be uh, considered if an employee said, well, you fired me while I was on leave. And so therefore you've breached the, my, my rights under the leave period. Um, it, it same, it, to me, it's similar to the kinds of arguments that we've already talked about uh, as to whether the common law around constructive dismissal would would be applied in these circumstances, we have to we have to understand the full context of the situation that we're all in. And uh, and Mike is absolutely right that the protected leave is a is protection against losing your job because you've taken the leave. Um, but then there's still a question of is that why you lost your employment? Is that why the the business decided to end your employment. It's not because you took the leave. It's because we're hemorrhaging money and we, we have to shut down operations or we may have to actually uh, close our businesses. And those, those realities will have to be considered when we start talking about the decisions that em employers make. But you know, if an employee is on, is on a leave of absence and you're not paying them during that leave of absence, one question you might ask yourself is, what's the urgency of pulling that plug on the employment now that they're on uh, the infectious disease emergency leave? Is that a decision we can reach at the end of the COVID-19 period when we've got all of the data that's that's relevant? So, so that... Uh segues perfectly into Bridget's question that just came through, Rob. Um, and anybody, and I see Christine is back, hopefully with the ability to, uh, to be heard. Um, where employees have been laid off in April and May as a result of COVID-19, and then permanent terminations happened. Um, and obviously, you know, there, there will be some specific circumstances that we would want to know, but in a general sense, what do employers do if they made those decisions based on that? And, and will the kind of retroactive application of this regulation affect them negatively? I see people, everybody's reading, <laughs> reading the question in the Q&A there. Christina, thoughts? Now that we can hear you. So I'm hoping you can you can all hear me now. Apologies for the the technical difficulties there. Um, so I seem to have lost my my Q and A access, but.
from what I'm understanding, I think the question is, if prior to the introduction of this regulation, uh, decisions were made that, that either the layoff period had elapsed or was going to and terminations followed, and what do we do now? Is that the gist of the question? Uh, yes. We've already terminated and paid them out. And then this regulation came in to apply retroactively. So the regulation is clear that if there has been a termination already, uh, the employee is not retroactively deemed to have been on the leave. So that termination still applies. However, it does seem that there can be an agreement between the employee and the employer to perhaps rescind the termination notice. Uh, if you've already paid employees out, that, that gets more complicated and perhaps is a question to take offline. Uh, but generally speaking, if those termination notices have gone out, if the employment relationship has already been severed, the regulation will not retroactively reinstate that employee or, or nullify that, that termination. Thanks, Christina. Makes sense to you, Mike. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's move on. And I think and, and we're close to wrapping up here. Uh, thank everybody for sticking with us and their patience. Um, this is a common one here, and uh, we saw it come through the Q&A, and we saw um, and this is about returning people to work and whether they whether or not they, they come in, um, <clears throat> or sorry, whether they, they come back. Um, oh, sorry, everyone. Um, so if they're called back and, and there is work, but they refuse due to non-COVID reasons, can they, and is, is this in any way any different from what we would normally consider a, a, at least exploring the idea that they've abandoned their employment? So I can jump in on that one again, uh, make up for lost time as it were. Uh, I would say no, if the employee is refusing to come to work and it's not tied to any of the entitlements that would give rise to a job protected leave, and just as a reminder, that does include things like childcare obligations or caring for family members who are sick with COVID-19, uh, then I, I think you're in, in the normal circumstances, again, where uh, they can be considered to have resigned or abandoned their employment. Uh, that said, use caution when making that determination. I think as employers, everyone needs to be a bit sensitive to the fact that perhaps there's some fear among the workforce and being sure to manage any anxieties, uh, uncertainties by making sure there are clear policies in place about the steps being taken to prevent uh, any infectious disease issues in the workplace. Uh, so I think that's a good start. I also think you need to do some work in inquiring as to why the employee is not willing to come back. Uh, so again, if there's say a care obligation that they have, that employee might not be articulating to you that their reason for not returning to work is tied to COVID-19. Uh, maybe they say, I, I just can't do it. I have things going on at home. Uh, so as an employer, I think you do have that duty to inquire. Just make sure there isn't an entitlement to that leave that 
that might be missed. Uh, but otherwise, if it's just, you know, I, I'd rather have the CERB, um, I'd rather not return, then the regulation wouldn't change that in any way. Okay, and I think that's a good point, Christina, and it, it kind of, it's the corollary of what uh, we've been talking about today in terms of the special considerations, right? Rob mentioned, in, uh, mentioned it in the last uh, question that we addressed, and just as we expect um, the courts to take special consideration of the circumstances, um, we as employers have to do the same thing and, and not just um, give the, oh, you've said no, you're out of here. Um, you've said no, and, and I know you don't check any boxes or anything like that. I think um, an employer who does that is, is uh, doing themselves a disservice in these times, at least. So I think that's a good point to make. Um, I would also mention, this is something that we did cover in our previous yes. webinar, episode 16 on reopening for business during and after COVID-19. I think a related issue, and Christina, you did touch on it a little bit. What if we have an employee who says uh, they have some fear uh, of uh, uh, the, the workplace itself being unsafe? How do we address that kind of a situation where the employee says, uh, I'm concerned that if I come back to work, I will be exposed to potential COVID-19. And that is the reason I am refusing to come back to work. So I think there are, are two ways that can play out. So if the employee is able to tie their fear of the workplace to the physical condition of the workplace, they're able to point to say, uh, we haven't implemented the appropriate policies, members of the public are coming in, social distancing can't be maintained. If there's something that the employee is pointing to about the condition of the workplace, uh, that may become a work refusal and the process um, would need to be followed in that case. So you would need to do an inspection, perhaps involve the ministry if things progress. Um, but on the other hand, if the employee is just saying, I think that going to work will put me at a higher risk in any event, and it's not tied to the condition of the workplace, it's not tied to any policies, we've had guidance so far that those types of work refusals will not be upheld and that a general fear of COVID uh, is not sufficient to justify a refusal to return to work. Uh, but again, an important caveat is if an employee is coming to you and saying, for example, I have, an, I have clinical anxiety, I cannot return to the workplace because this has become an issue for me, here is my doctor's note, uh, that might be where the accommodation process is being triggered and you need to go down that route. And so as I've been saying, I think the real, um, real advice here in any circumstance is just make sure you're taking an individualized approach with employees if they're refusing to return. Thanks, Christina. I think that makes sense. Um, anyone? before we move on to uh, what I think will probably be our last or second last question. Um, if we're returning them and it is a job protected leave, does that mean uh, that the normal um, considerations in terms of the, the same hours apply? Well, the regulation says it's a job protected leave 
even if their hours are reduced or even if their hours are eliminated. Based on that, I don't see any requirement that an employee be uh, reinstated to their full-time hours while this leave of absence is in effect. Thanks, Mike. That makes sense. Okay, uh, what do we have here? Let's see. Okay, that, so that's the end of our slides. And I'm just looking here, we have one last question that we have not yet addressed, which is um, a contract with a specific end date. And for the purposes of this discussion, we'll assume it was uh, valid and uh, in the defined term contract requirements under the ESA. Um, who can, uh, who wants to take this one with respect to, is it an issue that their contract expired during the time that now is retroactively considered to be a job protected leave? I think this was, uh, this would be addressed the same way that we talked about, um, you know, those termination decisions that were made um, prior to the regulation coming out, but uh, who, uh, I I think Christine is probably going to want to answer that, but I, I, I would say one thing that I would be thinking about is what is, is there a potential? Let's say the end date was actually some point after March 1st um, and that we couldn't reach the end date because of the pandemic. I guess one of the questions I might ask is, um, you know, how would the contract be interpreted if we were litigating whether or not the employers actually complied with the contract because we've lost, you know, period of time within the term of the contract? Is it is this some sort of you know, act of God that has made the contract frustrated in terms of its performance? Or should the employee continue in the term once the once the COVID-19 period is at an end. So there's there's some questions I think that would require us to take a look at the actual term contract. And I would think in a three month term contract for most employers, it, would, it wouldn't necessarily be um, anticipating those types of events. So we might not see that kind of language in that agreement. But I mean, I'll let Christine answer the general question or Mike. I would, uh, Rob, I'd certainly agree with you on that. It, it would be important to consider uh, the contract itself. Um, I also think in terms of other circumstances to consider uh, some factors that might come into play would be, say, if there has been uh, any communication to the employee that, say, but for COVID, that contract would have been extended. Uh, that's information I'd want to know as well. Um, also, just a a uh, caution with all fixed term contracts is oftentimes uh, employers can use them for a period of time and for example it's a five-year employee but they've been on a series of uh, one-year contracts i think in that case there would be a different answer than if it's say a six-month contract that that simply has run its course during the um, during the COVID period, as it were. Um, but I, I think it really just, it really will come down to the individual contract. So 
No, that's a good so point, similar- Christina. If there's sorry, Rob, good point, Christina. If there is a series of successive fixed term contracts with no real reapplication process for each and every one, that will be deemed to be one long, uninterrupted, and indefinite term contract. So uh, that's a good point. I would like to know whether the contract says specifically this point on the calendar is your end date versus you will provide services for us for three months. Those might have two different interpretations. An employee might be able to say, I was only able to provide services for two weeks until the pandemic happened. And, and so I'm still owed two and a half months on the back end once we're allowed to reopen, which kind of raises another issue. Is the workplace uh, on the list of essential workplaces? And can this employee be working remotely? And why are they not working now? Uh, were they reduced because of economic reasons? We don't think we can quite afford it, or was it that we're not even permitted to operate at this point? If it's the latter, we may have another uh, argument, which is that the employment contract has actually been frustrated by some unexpected, unanticipated, uh, actually, you know, function of law that says the contract is impossible to perform. And so that's just another thing we have to consider. Yeah, sorry, Mike. Those are all good points. Um, thankfully, Lynn was able to answer your questions of her. Um, specifically, it was their first contract and it had an end date. So um, that wraps that neatly up in a bow. But certainly, if there are other instances, valid considerations. Um, and, and thank you, Lynn. It's hard to uh, get lawyers to stop talking, but one way is to give. I don't. I don't want to stop talking because I wanted to say one other thing. I think. I think generally speaking, we while well, we answered Lynn's question, we're we're trying to give general advice about yeah. those types of term contracts. But a similar kind of scenario that I can imagine is not about a term contract, but that the employer has provided notice of termination, working notice of termination with. A termination date that arose arises after March first. Um, what happens with that? It's a similar kind of thing that we 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 we've contemplated an end date for the employment, um, and then so we would probably address, except for the contractual um, interpretation language debate we had, we, we would approach it the same the same way in terms of the answers that we gave. Okay, well, um, thank you, everyone. Uh, those of you who stuck with us uh, from beginning to end, amazing. For those of you listening or watching after the fact, we hope you've uh, learned some things and, and learned the questions to ask both of uh, your employees, yourselves, and, uh, and of us if you need to get in touch with us. Here's how. It's on the screen. If you're not uh, viewing this, but rather listening to a podcast version, uh, then you can Find all of our contact info on our website at www.ccpartners.ca where you can access all of our various broadcasts, contact information for all the members of our team, and uh, sign up to receive our blog. Uh, normal circumstances, I would say weekly blog, but uh, these are not normal circumstances as uh, you heard today and have heard every day since it started, I'm sure. Um, but uh, the reason 
it's not weekly anymore is because it's sometimes uh, daily or twice daily, depending on what is happening. And we want to make sure that you get all of the information. So on behalf of Mike, Rob, Christina, and myself, and all the lawyers at uh, the Lawyers for Employers at CC Partners, I want to thank everyone for attending. And, uh, you know, ask the questions. If you need to talk to us, you know where to find us. Thank you, everyone. And this will be available soon um, via our website and through the, uh, on the broadcast tab, as well as uh, through YouTube and SoundCloud for the podcast version. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.